Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here. Hope you guys are staying, staying safe during your corona quarantine. We got another uh, great podcast to come um, or for you. I have on the phone Frank Green from Bartland Barrels. Want to introduce Frank because we've had a lot of barrel questions and I'll talk to Frank about that. But Frank, come on in and say hi and tell everybody uh, how you're doing uh, through, the, through the quarantine. How you doing, Frank? Um, we're doing good. Everything is here. We're all plugging away. Everybody's staying healthy and just kind of watching, you know, what we do and how we do it around the shop and stuff. But for the most part, it's business as usual right now. So we're all doing good. And I, I hope everybody out there and I hope you and everyone on Cypress side is, you know, stays healthy as well. So yeah, we're, we're, we're quarantining, staying in place and, and just doing the internet stuff right now. So uh, that's good. But, um, reason I, I, it's been a long time coming to get you guys on the podcast and I keep getting this question comes around and I kind of, I don't want to get into the weeds myself, but guys have been asking on the pod, uh, on the Podbean app, hey, about barrel contours. So they're like, you know, we got lengths, we got twist, we got this, but then the question was coming contours. And I'm like, well, geez, why don't I just get Bartlett on to talk everything barrel and we can have a good barrel episode with you guys. And I figured this was the, the perfect opportunity with, with the with everybody being in to to have uh you know you on the podcast for the first time and then we can kind of get into the weeds as as far as you want to go on to start okay. off with barrel contour you know sure no problem well you know i mean barrel contours and maybe for as i lead into that what i always tell people is you know the biggest thing the barrel contour affects is weight but I always tell people the straighter the blank, the straighter the barrel, the more uniform it twists, the more uniform your bore and groove dimensions are over the length of the barrel, and the more stress-free the barrel is, the more forgiving the barrel's going to be. And I don't think the contour affects it as much as people think it does. The old saying is a heavier barrel, you know, if you go to the bench rest guys, the old saying is a heavier contour barrel or heavy a heavy varmint contour type barrel shoots better than a lightweight barrel and i agree with that to an extent but i really think it goes back to the first things i just said the more uniform the barrel is the straighter the blank and the more stress-free it is the more forgiving the barrel is going to be and and i know you've seen it too where you you shot guns with medium palma type contours or rem varmint type contours and they'll shoot every bit as good as a as an M40 type contour or an MTU type contour barrel, so yeah, the weight of the barrel does help recoil. It does help a shooter shoot better for a longer period of time. But um, so that that that's a benefit there. But I think in terms of how the barrel shoots and stuff. I don't think the the contours is critical as some people think it is. Yep, and and I do. I we started out. You're absolutely right. I started out with a lot of the M40 or MTU contours. Um, I, matter of fact, I have one of the right next to me. Um, I have one of the original GA Precision Sniper's Hide rifles, the Headhunter one we did, and that's the heavy MTU M40 contour. But then, like when you go up to the Gladius and you go up to some of the other rifles we've done, and then recently. Like you said, we're more in that sort of Remington varmint contour, although mm -hmm. I I always tend to call it more of a gap contour because I know George pushed out 
the the contour a little bit past the chamber. Um, yep, yep. You spend the brief things like like it's it's kind of like the palma barrels, you know, and that's where the palma contour came in. Which is if you look at a rim environment, a palma contour side by side from a couple feet away, you almost can't tell a difference. There's very minute differences, but the palma contour. See, in a Palma rifle, where it's you know, a true Palma gun is 308, and with your sights on the gun, your sling, hand stop, the gun ready to go, it can't be over 14 pounds, 2 ounces. And a lot of those guys run the 30 inch long barrels because they want the sight radius, but they have a weight limit on the gun they have to deal with. And that uh, the Palma contour helps keep, it helps keep the weight of the rifle down, and it doesn't affect the gun's shooting ability at all. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly kind of the direction I tend to go for me because I mean, yes, with the competition now and, and you see this with the PRS guys coming in and talking to you and with George and, and what he's doing, um, being so he's so deep rooted in that competition series, they're going straight tapers, they're going heavier. But part of that is exactly what you said is the weight because they're trying to get that rifle to sit in that bag and they're bringing the weights up higher. But I think the biggest question that people have is sort of the heat mitigation, right? So if we're doing, right. well, and then, go ahead, and that, and that's where it, that was that was going to kind of come up next too. And I'm glad you I'm glad you said it already. The heat, um, again, when I go back to the stress in the blank, if you and I know you shotguns where you've seen it, um, I tell guys if you start shooting the gun, and it's regardless of the barrel contour, but even if it's a heavy contour, if you start shooting a gun. And as the barrel starts warming up, if you start getting rounds on it and you see the shots walk on paper, I tell guys, don't adjust the scope or the sights. Leave it. Let the gun cool and start shooting it again. If your impacts start coming right back to the original point of aim like it did the first time, and, it's, and it's, you see the shots start walking on the paper again, let's rule out that you know, the, the rifle's bedded properly and all the other stuff. But to me, that's a sign that the barrel's got a lot of stress in the blank. And that's where, that's where the heavier contour will want to resist the change more than a lighter contour. But to me, that's, that's a barrel that's got a lot of stress in the blank. And if the blank's got a lot of stress in it, you're not going to get it out. And, but again, that goes back to the more stress-free the barrel is, the more forgiving the barrel's going to be. And different things like... The cut rifling versus button barrels. Button rifling induces a lot of stress into the blank. And even though they most shops stress relieve the blank after button rifling before turning, that's one thing that no barrel maker can measure for. We can't measure for residual stress in the blank. So, I, you know, I, my wife's gun, I built her a, an old Browning Seiko Safari. They, it's a sport. It's got that double radius on the breech end. The gun has a 600 muzzle. It's in 260 Remington. The gun without the scope weighs seven and a half pounds, and you can literally shoot the gun all day long, and it, it'll give you half five eighths minute of angle, and it does nothing weird. Not easy. And that's a real that's a real lightweight contour barrel. Right, and and you know what? And this is I'm I'm really glad you went that direction because I bring this up a lot. I don't really say it the way you're saying it to the degree. But the stress in the barrels, we see that a lot more than people realize. And mm -hmm. we kind of talk about that with the, you know, the cold bore side of things. Because, you know, there's, there's, there's the straight up cold bore, which, you know, I look at as being stress in the barrel. 
Then there's the cold shooter, cold mine, which is our first round flinch. Yep. Is it, is it a cold, clean barrel or cold, dirty barrel? Right. Yep. And so this is this is where I think the public, prior to you guys, you know, go. Let's go back ten, twenty. Actually, go. Let's go back twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the industry sort of tried to convince the consumer that that stress was normal. Do you, do you know where yeah, I'm going you know, with that? Do you do you, you, right. you, you and. There, there, there's, you know, it, it kind of brings you kind of now you're kind of getting into also about where the cryo comes in, right? Treating the barrels, okay? You know, I tell guys, you, you you can break down all the different types of um, metallurgical components in the steel, the nickel, the chromium stuff like that. But when you get down to like the martensite and the austenite, the austenite in the part of the structure, the grain structure of the steel, that's what retains the stress, okay? The Martin side is the stress-free side of the steel. And guys ask us all the time, and we've played with the cryo. When we worked at Krieger, we used to cryo-treat all the blanks before, you know, beforehand and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tell guys, I always told people, cryo-treating does not do anything for cleaning. It does nothing for accuracy. It does nothing for barrel life. If the uh, – what it does is – if, if there's, it helps artificially age or treat and convert the austenite to martensite. That makes the steel more stress-free. Again, what, what no barrel maker can measure is how much of it's there. So the more the, the, more the martensite that's in there than the austenite, the cryos may have less of an effect. And we've we played with the cryo here because that's what was ingrained to us when, when we were at Krieger. But in reality... We don't, we don't see it making a ton of difference. And that goes back to the quality of the material. And that's why we don't buy from a warehouse and stuff. We work directly with the mill when we order our steel. That way, if there's a problem, I make one phone call. I'm not dealing with a warehouse or somebody that's not going to stand behind the material. The steel material is the one thing that we don't manufacture that we have no control over. And that's why the steel is very critical in what you get. And you can... You can buy a barrel steel cheap, and you can buy it expensive, and you know it's. But we have to go with the expensive side of it because, like, like I said, it's the one thing we don't make, and we need we need to know that we're getting the best we can get our hands on. Nice, and 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 that's this is huge, man, because like you're saying, with some guys who who are going to see a a a result from going heavier because it's going to mask any problems that are in that barrel. So that's kind of a good. Uh, Good to back of your mind to know, well, hey, and when in doubt, if you went a little bit heavier, you might be able to mask this up a little bit. But, yeah, we always see, you know, guys who, who talk about the fluting after the fact, uh, like you're talking button barrels and everything, how you can't, there's very little they can do um, after right. they cut and, it. And the fluting brings up a good point, too, because we're, we're, now we're still talking contours and stress and stuff. And I've always told people, this, you know, the fluting brings in to the, to the weight thing. Um, I always tell people I would never flute a button or hammer forge barrel. Because if you hit a residual stress point, that's what I call it, in the material, the secondary machine operation, even cutting and crowning the muzzle, um, that machine operation basically, and this is how I describe it, it'll relieve the stress and the bore will go sour on you. It'll open up. 
And when it does that, you cannot make it go back. And that's why I won't flute. Um, I tell guys I would never flute a button barrel or a hammer forge type barrel. I've never seen a problem with cut barrels with fluting. Um, I know AI did a test back in the original, very first version of the PSR go around. And um, they were looking at trying to, you know, make the guns closer to the weight spec, or they wanted to make sure they stayed under the weight spec. And um, they were running real heavy straight taper barrels. And so in one of the testing they did, and I think they did 10 each, they did 10 30 cals and 10 338s. And they fluted the barrels really deep. I think they went like 150,000 deep on the flutes. And what they found was they had no issues with the 30 cal barrels. All the 30 cal barrels shot fine. The 338s, two out of the 10, if I remember correctly, they would throw random flyers, and they couldn't tell you when it would do it. But the only difference between those barrels was the bore size. You went from 30 cal to 338. You lost that extra 30 thousandths of wall thickness on the barrel. And that's where I think the depth of the flutes does play a part, but that really brings up the whole stress in the blank and everything else that comes along with that. Nice, nice. And we, and it, it seems we're on the fluting and blanking. I, I want to kind of go off of a conversation you and I had because I think, and we're going to get into some of the game twist stuff, and we were talking about that at SHOT Show, but then we kind of went into the John Baker mindset with that dissimilar fluting and how to, like, break up the harmonic using sort of patterns. You know, we weren't. We won't get into the the cutting the holes in the side of the barrel. We we already talked about that. You know, you and I. Right. We, we don't need to get into that part of it. But right. in, in the stress side of things, and in that harmonic wave that the barrel is experiencing, I it it, it almost seems like there there might be merit in the idea where you know the the, the harmonics going through one set of flutes. Then when it hits another set of flutes that go in the different directions, it sort of changes that direction. And then it right. does it again in, in John Baker's um, sort of, uh, you know, brainstorm of what he's doing there. And mm-hmm. I can see it having very similar effects to the game twist in sort of it's a, a dampening effect, right? Is in that kind of the direction we were talking about with it? Yeah. Yep. And I, and I, it's one of those things, again, I, I can't, or not I, we can't measure it and stuff. It's more of a theory per se, but having the gain twist versus a, a straight twist type rifling. Um, and I always go back to, you know, the thing I always say is the more uniform the twist, the more forgiving the barrel's going to be. Um, the gain twist, a couple of things that uh, I'll quote what Harry Pope said back around 100 years ago. Um, he said the gain twist did three things for him. He says, uh, the first, the twist being less at the breech. Now, you got to remember the mindset. These are shoots and offhand rifles shooting lead bullets. But uh, what he said, the twist being less at the breech, it gives less friction to the bullet. He said, there, it, therefore, the bullet starts easier and quicker, giving the powder less time to burn on in front of the chamber, which therefore fouls less than the, in the barrel of a uniform twist at the same necessary muzzle pitch, but that's what he called it, the twist. Right. He said the second thing it did, the slight change in angle of rifling in connection with the choke bore, lapping choke into the barrel, it effectually shuts off any gas escape of gas and prevents gas cutting, which is another case of 
of affecting bullet delivery or creating an imperfect bullet delivery. He said, third, it holds the muzzle-loaded bullet in a position much better than a uniform twist. And I agree with that with the lead bullet stuff. I can't, I can't stand a stack of Bibles and say it makes a huge difference with the, with the um, a jacketed bullet or a solid bullet because, um, you know, the bullets don't give as easy as a, as a lead bullet does. But, but then I got to look at almost all the top short-range BR guys that are shooting our barrels Almost all of are shooting some version of a gain twist. So I know it's not hurting anybody. And, um, right. and does it help do something because you have a, you have a, a twist that's slightly changing? It, is it helping, even though maybe it's really minutely, and we can probably say it probably doesn't, but you got to put it in a the theory, does it help do something with, because you're making a change to the barrel, is it helping dampen the harmonics or the vibration somehow? And this is where I think it uh, like with load development, everybody that I'm talking to is finding load developments much easier on the gain twist as well as I've brought up with you several times. And I brought up on this podcast is, you know, I could take the greatest example I have is, is my, my 260 as well. My 260 Remington. Um, I have the, the 130 prime load uh, just, you know, right out of the box. And then I have a, right. I have a 136 hand load that I get in bulk through Andrew McCourt. So I have a, I have a very, it's a hard, it's a kind of a hot 136 load. Then I have the 130 prime. They zero in the exact same place with this rifle. It's identical. And I've right. noticed that if I switch bullet weights, I don't see as big a swings with the gain twist as I do with the straight twist barrels. And you know, that the twist rate is such a huge conversation because we're you know your bench rest guys want to do the minimal amount of twist where the tactical guys and now like you know the ELR type people we're looking to overspin to a certain degree so it's trying to figure out that balance you know so maybe we can kind of yeah. get into that why do bench rest guys want no twist if they can get away with it yet the ELR guys the old, the old thing with the BR guys is that, uh, and I agree, I agree with it to an extent. What they feel is running a twist on ragged edge of stabilizing the bullet, that's where they get their best accuracy. And I get what they're saying. I understand it. Um, where I come at it from, and I even did this with my own bench rest gun, I don't like running my twist on my rifles on the ragged edge. Because when you, when you run a twist on a ragged edge, um, Frank Galley that shoots in Denver, Colorado at 5,000 feet elevation, you can get by with a twist at that ragged edge or, or a slower twist than what a guy can at sea level. Right. So when you've got to travel to a different part of the country or a different part of the world to shoot a match, you, you're also dealing with the whole environment and the conditions that you're, you're shooting in. And so I don't like running my stuff on the ragged edge because of that reason. And you, you look at the, the, the old timers that used to run 15 twist, six millimeter PPC barrels. And you got to remember bullet technologies changed with them a little bit too. Right. But they would say, yeah, you know, if it, if you started shooting the match out and it was 60, 65 degrees, the gun shot like a million bucks. You couldn't do anything wrong with it. But if you started shooting the match out in the morning and it, the temperature was down in the forties, 
He said, you couldn't hit a garbage can with the freaking gun, the, the same exact gun. And that, to me, that's where the twist is. That's been on a ragged edge. That's where it causes problems. I also think a little bit faster twist helps the bullets, per se, in the transitioning, you know, when you're going to in the transonic range and stuff like that, too. And that's the so, argument, right? Right. The other place where it comes into is the bolt tails versus flat-based bullets. The bolt tails tend to be a little more finicky than a bolt than a flat-based bullet does. And uh, but really, I tell guys, twist really is dictated by bullet length, not per se bullet weight. Because usually, as the bullet weight goes up, the bullet gets longer. So that's where I start with my twist stuff there. And um, well, and and to me, the gain solves this question. It's like, and I understand it's machining wise, it's difficult. You guys have the you know the the computer controlled. The ability, you, you know, you, you're building your tools because you're cut rifle. Right, yeah, we can, we can pretty much do whatever twist the guy wants. Right, right. So you have that ability to really kind of, you know, do this in, in one of the most efficient, best practice ways, you know, uh, it could be accomplished today, I guess, is, is, is the way to put it. But, um, right. you know, so it just, it to me, it makes so much sense that we can mechanically adjust this. You, mm-hmm. you know, rather than saying, okay, here's... Some of, the guys seem, some of the guys seem to say that the gain twist gives them, a, like you were saying, a, it gives them a broader tune window. Right. And and, and that's kind of what I've noticed is I have a, a very good forgiving window. Then, I, I like I said, the left hand, going left hand for me, um, I feel it when I'm in alternate positions. You don't feel it as much in the prone. But then I do know my wind calls tend to be truer. I know that I can manage the wind much, much better, even in some crazy conditions where I'm able to manage the wind and I'm not getting because our, our our range switches switches direction and speed quite often. Where you know my prevailing wind should be coming from nine o'clock from the left, but it's not uncommon with fronts and different things to come from the right. So I see it both ways. And I don't mm-hmm. see a big swing from my left side to my right side. I can I can just say wind speeds this. I don't care which direction it came from, and my my calls are truer, you know. Okay. So I I do notice that as far as um you know where I have a seven twist two sixty, my seven mm-hmm. twist two sixty it, it favors one side, and okay. uh, um you know it it it. it tends to show up a little now it's a shorter uh rifle it's only i think an 18 inch or 18 or 20 inch on the seven twist um but you can tell there's there's a little favor to it um the the gain twists don't do that and and so yeah yeah i just find that it it seems to be smooth's not the right word but smooth kind of describes everything it's 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 a it's a it's a push not a snap it's smooth it kind of flows like the shot flows better from firing to impact i guess is a way to put it right and pulp going back to what i was talking about pulp earlier with the gain twist if you ever look down a pulp barrel all of pulp's i, I don't want to call them as match barrels cuz he he made test barrels and stuff like that too but all of Pope's barrels that went on the shoots and rifles and stuff and bench guns, they were all left-hand twist. And what we got to keep in mind is 
you know, it was very common for an offhand rifle to be in a 40 caliber, and they were slinging a 330-grain bullet. Even though the bullet was only coming out at maybe 12 or 1,400 feet per second, you still had a lot of weight there to get that bullet going. Right. And he, he, his comment was he would never make a right-hand twist barrel. He said all the southpaw shooters, all the lefties can suffer. But his, one of the things that he was saying with those real heavy bullets and, you know, you got to think more offhand shooting and stuff like that, that the gun would torque into the shooter can control the recoil or the torque of the gun better right. for a right-handed shooter and a left-hand twist. Because it's going to torque the gun. That's what he said. It would, it would torque the gun into you. And um, I never really thought about it much until we started doing the gain twist barrels. And I thought back years ago, uh, one time I was at the range with a uh, – a 1917 U.S. Enfield in 30-06, and an 0-3 Springfield. It was just, you know, one of those fun days at the range. And I noticed when I went from one gun to the other, and I'm a left-handed shooter, the uh, the guns, they, they felt differently. They torqued differently. And I, I didn't think about it at first. But the Enfield, the U.S. Enfield, and even British 303 Enfields, those are all left-hand twist five-groove barrels. And I could tell that Enfield acted differently it's, it's, it's like it's, it's like when you shot it. It's like you could feel the more cheek pressure with the stock. So it's like you could almost, like I said, you can almost control the recoil or the gun better. Right. It's it's center thing. lined instead of going outboard. Right. Yeah. And and you know we shoot so many alternate positions nowadays where we're off our belly in PRS and NRL. Where I think that kind of is that benefit, even though we're such light stuff. You know what I mean? We're shooting really light bullets. We're shooting fast, mm-hmm. but guys are still noticing the weight difference between, you know, shooting a 130 and a 143. They still perceive it because we are getting that much better. We are off our belly and we're shooting off of bags and we're not free recoiling it, but pretty darn close to letting the rifle do a lot of the work. And right. you can see, you can feel it if you're paying attention. Where I right. think, and the, and, the, and the more the gun tracks, the, the the better the gun tracks, the more it helps the shooter and everything. Right, right. So that's where I think these benefits come in, and and it's funny because I still get because part of the uh, I what is it? There's there's the guys in Australia that shoot really far, Mark and Sam or something. I think they're called. And and they did a and their YouTube channel super popular. I think it's big, twice as big as mine. Um, it, you know they were they kind of did a hey, what's this gain twist? Because my videos talk about gain twist all the time, and I get tons and tons of what's the point. But they did a mm-hmm. video that were kind of like I don't get it, and and that's all they said is they just don't see the the effort. And but at the same time, like you should tell out there because you're making them service rifle guys are doing it. There's bench rest guys that are doing it. There's, you know, our guys that are doing it now. I'm not the only one talking gain twist. Right. So, well, one of the guys that we make service rifle blanks for, um, he does a very, a very radical gain twist, and he did it for a couple of reasons. One, they're trying to get the 90-grain bullets as fast, going as fast as possible and fight the, the pressures and everything. And they're also fighting the, the bullet failure problem that used to be really high with the 90 grainers also. And, um, yeah, several people he's built guns for, they've won parry and stuff like that, and they're all shooting a, a pretty pretty radical gain twist barrel. So it's working for him. He likes it, and that's, that's what he buys. So 
Yeah. Um, he's but doing it, it for those reasons. It, it's just, it's not mainstream. You know, it, it's kind of on that fringe edge going back to Pope and going, you know, what we're doing now with it. Oh, sure. And, and, sure. and so you're, you're just getting the people who, who are like, well, is it worth the little bit extra? But honestly, I'm sure you get the same feedback I do because I talk about the game twist and I know the guys are calling you up and bugging you about it. And then you're, right. you're building them for people. Uh, I mean, you're probably getting the same feedback I am that the guys are happy with them. Yeah, I mean, like I said, for the most part, I I haven't had anybody complain to us, you know, that they they think the gain to us caused them any problems or anything like that. And like I said, virtually all the top short range BR guys are shooting a gain twist of some version. You know, some guys are a little bit not as much on the gain. Some are a little bit more. But virtually almost all the top guys are shooting some type of a gain twist barrel in the short range BR stuff. And there are some guys who are still shooting straight twist barrels, and you know they're winning matches with them and stuff too. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, for the most part, um, there's no no complaints about the stuff that way. We are going to be making some more gain twist pressure barrels, and um, and one of the ammunition and bullet makers they did the first round of testing for us but we weren't thinking far enough ahead. We just did a normal Sammy pressure port location. They didn't see a pressure difference, and there was no accuracy difference. They said there was, you know, they're shooting the barrel out of a, a universal test receiver that's, you know, mounted to the bench and stuff. Um, but the next batch of barrels we're going to do for testing, and we're doing two. We're doing 308 Winchester and 6.5 Creedmoor. And, um, but we're going to put another pressure port, say about six, seven inches in front of the chamber, we want to see if the pressure is dropping faster or maybe not spiking as fast in the gain twist barrel versus a straight twist barrel. But that testing still a little bit ways out, but that's, that's in the works to get that done too. And see if we can learn anything from it. That's what we're doing it more, than, for, more for than anything else. Nice. And that, that takes it out of kind of me just saying I like it to, hey, we have some data now. You know, right. It, it, and, and, that, and that's what I'm kind of about is – I mean, if you ask me a question, I'll tell you, Frank, you know, if, if, if there's a hard answer, I'll give you the hard answer. If it's my opinion, I'll tell you it's my opinion. I'll tell you what I base it on. I, I don't like saying stuff that I can't, I can't back up or prove or anything like that. If I tell you, hey, I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know. You know, or if I can find out, I'll find out somehow. But I do like having the data to back stuff up, so... And and then like to go with that data thing, I want to kind of keep on this same path of kind of pressures and stress and where we're going with that. Let's just talk sort of what I consider the weak link in the system. How many times you like you're looking at, hey, this barrel doesn't work, and and then where the bullet is for that versus the barrels? Because like uh, there's a question coming in right now, a guy shooting on the site. And he's saying, you know, I'm trying to shoot like uh, the Barnes uh, GMXs, the, the the monolithics. And he, it, yeah. Up, yeah, and he's going, you know, he's trying Barnes and he's trying Hornaday, both solids. And he goes, well, mm-hmm. gee, you know, a 143 Hornaday works great, but I can't get these to shoot. And how much kind of the bullet play into this and the different things with the bullet play? Well, like going back to what we said earlier, like the solids, to get the same weight bullet in the solid because you don't have the density of the lead core, to get the same weight as a 140 grain versus another 140 grain bullet, that copper solid, it ends up getting longer. Right. And that's where I think some of the guys run into a problem is, is 
is the twist of the barrel fast enough to stabilize that longer bullet? Um, as I said, you know, it's more bullet length that dictates the twist requirement more than the bullet weight. They kind of go hand in hand, but uh, you guys but it's cause and effect. It, it's co- right. You're right. longer, so you're heavier, right? That kind of right. And that longer bullet needs typically will need a faster twist rate, even though they're the same weight. That solid being longer, um, it needs it it'll typically needs a faster twist to stabilize it to spin the bullet. Um, when that gets back into the whole thing with, uh, oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm shooting this factory barrel gun or this other gun with this this twist rate, or this is what the factory puts in the in the barrels for twist, and it won't shoot those solid bullets. Um, one of the solid bullet makers and I, we've had some pretty good conversations on on solid bullets, and they'll get guys calling in saying, yeah, I bought your bullets, but they don't shoot, and he starts asking questions, and then we find out. Oh, he's just running a, a factory blah 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 barrel, and now you have a problem with bore size and uniformity and what the twist is, and kind of the feeling is on the solid bullets too. Talking to one of the bullet makers, the closer the bullet is to groove size, you like like within a tenth or a tenth plus bigger than actual groove size, the better the bullet shoots. Because the the solid bullet doesn't give as easy as a as a copper jacket bullet does, and right, right, you can kind of you can kind of lump that in with uh, bullets too. You get barrels that you know I've seen barrels where yeah it's a three weight barrel it's a so and so match spec barrel, but the bore and groove are a thou oversized so the bore is running at three hundred one and three hundred nine, but the bullets are coming in at three hundred seven eight three hundred eight zero from the bullet manufacturer. Yeah, the, the barrel would shoot minute of angle, and it would do it all day long, but you can't get nothing more out of it. And that's because of the, how the bullet's fitting into the bore of the barrel. We, we kind of got away from the, the tight bore. That's where the, the, the Gladius that you guys did with me, that started out as a two ninety eight, you know, and that was the tight bore. Um, and, and we were, you know, give it's the 18 inch. It has the higher velocity, you know, with, mm-hmm. with a factory round, I was like at 2645 on of an 18 right. inch barrel with just factory, even black Hills, which tends to be slow black Hills. I was 2575 out of an 18 mm-hmm. incher. Um, you know, but you know, f- for a while we were exploring that tight bore, and then mm-hmm. it seemed like we kind of walked away from it a little bit. What was sort of the findings there that it wasn't worth it, or just kind of stick to the ninety nine and be good? Well, the uh, the whole type bore, and if you stay with the thirty cal thing, the whole type bore came about. I want to say it was back in the seventies, and the guy's name was Crichton Audet. I'll, I'll give him the credit for it, and he was a big Palma shooter. And um, Al Warren and I have talked about this. And what the Palmer shooters found out was if you go to the host country for the International Palmer Championships, the, issue, the host country issues the ammo. You're not allowed to bring your own ammo. At least that's the way it was. I don't okay. know if it's changed or not. I don't think it has. The problem guys were finding was they went up to Canada or over to the U.K. or South Africa, and they were getting issued ball ammo. And the bullets they found were, were running as small as 3065 in diameter. So the the I think Crichton Audet was the first guy to ask Obermeyer, "Can you make me a tight bore thirty cal barrel?" And that's where I think the whole tight bore thing started from. And um, 
So even right now, nowadays, I mean, I tell guys, if you're shooting good quality match bullets, I don't see the tight bore really giving you anything extra. Um, it's where you run into problems if the bullets are running undersized and stuff. And even, even a lot of the Palmer shooters have gone more towards a 299 bore and a three-way groove versus, you know, 20 years ago, it was virtually 298, 3065. That was almost a given spec. That was probably... 90% of the work that we were doing for the type four Palma guys. Um, the only where I get a little hesitant with type fours is if a guy tells me, well, I'm building a 300 wind mag that all that extra powder capacity, carbon following stuff like that. I go, and when you, get, you start getting the cartridges like that, I say, go standard bore. It's, it's to me, it's, it'd be a little more forgiving on cleaning carbon buildup and pressures and stuff like that. I'm okay with it in the 308s. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of the tight bores in the small calibers, uh, just because of bullet failure rate problems. Yep, it, yep. it seems to amplify because the rifling's going to cut deeper into the jacket of the bullet, and those the thin jacket six mils. It's kind of a problem up to and including six fives, and but that's why I'm not a fan of tight bore barrels per se, is because of. I, I want guys to help fight the bullet failure rate problem, and that, that brings up the whole 5R rifling. To me, the, the, the type of rifling has no real bearing on, on accuracy or barrel life, but the odd number of lands and grooves, they don't directly oppose one another. That helps fight bullet failure. Bullet failure can be because bullets can be a problem. There can be damage to the barrel from cleaning or from when the barrel was made and stuff like that. But I do, feel, I do feel that odd number of lands and grooves, they don't directly oppose one another, and that helps fight the bullet failure problem also. But the problem's more, it's more of a problem with the bullets failing in the 6.5s and 6 mil, the smaller calibers, 22, stuff like right, that. Right, we've seen it, where basically you just see the gray cloud and nothing gets hit, and you're like, well, wait, we're not, I didn't hit it, and I was right on. And then oh, yeah. It's like, no, it dude. To me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, we saw a gray cloud about 300 yards. Your bullet never made it. And um, it's kind of amazing. And that's where people had thought the gain twist was sort of double layering, you know, the groove. It's like it's laying. They act like there's two sets, you know, where where, and it's not quite like that. People should understand that it's sort of it's sort of pulled long. And so you're not overlaying itself twice. Right. That and and one of the theories, I'll call it, is that the. the start of the slower gain, it's not upsetting or, or hammering the jacket of the bullet as much as a, versus the bullet jumping into a straight twist barrel. Right. right away. So where 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 the, the 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 action is the most violent, you have the less kind of influence on it. So right where the bullet's coming out and hitting those lands and grooves really hard, we're going mm-hmm. mellow versus twisting it tight, which might dig or disrupt. I mean, we're, what we're really talking about, I think we should mention to people, is the bullet deformation, right? We're deforming the bullet mm-hmm. in the barrel, and so what we're trying to do is minimize the damage done to it. Uh, like with, Yeah, up, upsetting the bullet jacket is what I call it. Yeah, and, and or even that slipping the lead from the jacket is, is part of like the overspin. Yep. And, and, slippage, yeah. and, and that's where I tell people it's like the wheel weight. You know, you pull a wheel weight off your car and then and, and you're driving down the road. The, the core inside kind of took the, the bullet out of balance. And 
you know, that that elliptical swirl now becomes bigger and then the mm-hmm. bullet might just, you know, explode in the air or fall apart or not go where it's supposed to. And um, we noticed I years ago, one of the things, and I think I talked to you guys about this uh, with that is the, the seals were testing with the Oakwood stuff and they were doing BC tests using the Oakwood device because it's electronic and it can give them muzzle velocity both here and there. And they mm-hmm. were they were noticing in their five five sixes some you, you know like variations in the BCs were getting kind of crazy, and when they went down because Oakwood had a paper backer on it, they were looking and they saw that the the points were off center. Right, and that's kind- I've actually seen the I've actually seen, and this goes back to the quality of the ammunition, the quality of your components, and everything. Um, years and years ago, when I when I was shooting probably my second or third year of shooting some high-power matches, and me being a lefty, well, I'll try shooting an M1 Grand left-handed in a high-power match. Um, I started playing with, with AR-15s, and back then, I mean, the, only, the heavy bullets out there were 68-grain Hornies and 69-grain Sierras and, like, 70-grain JLKs. And I was using just a rack Colt AR-15A2, you know, and it had a seven-twist barrel. And benching the gun, testing it with a scope and stuff, Believe it or not, the gun would actually, with 69 grain Sierras, it would actually give you three-quarter minute. It, it didn't do anything weird. And then one day when I was practicing with it at the range, I, I burned up all my match bullets, my hand loads, and other stuff. But I went to offhand. I go, I'll save the ball ammo for shooting offhand. The first five rounds through the gun, two out of the five bullets went through the target sideways. And I thought something went totally sour with the gun or... I did something weird, and that was back when I was having uh, Krieger make my barrels and they were doing my gunsmithing work and stuff for me. And I was talking to John about it, and we got into the whole thing, everything that happened. He goes, huh, he goes, I wonder if it's just the bolts and the ammunition. I go, I got some 52-grain Hornady boat tails at home. I can load those up and see if they do it. So I went back to the range literally like four days later, and it was middle of summer. You know, it was 85 degrees out and stuff. 69 Green Sierra started right out at, at three-quarter minute again. I went to uh, um, the ball ammo. Sure enough, one out of the five rounds went to the target sideways. And we got to keep in mind, this is a seven-twist barrel, and the ball ammo was only 55 grains. That ball ammo would actually stabilize in a 14-twist barrel. You don't need that fast of a twist rate. Mm-hmm. I went to the 52-grain Hornady boat tails, and they shot every bit as good as the Sierra's did. They gave me three-quarter minute. Nothing, none of the bullets went through the target sideways or anything like that. And that showed me how much the quality of the ammunition, how much the quality of the bullet made a big difference. And, and that was in a really fast twist barrel. And again, those 52 Hornadies, they would have, they would have shot in a 14 twist barrel with no problem. Um, so, you know, the quality of the ammunition, the bullets has a lot to do with it, as with everything else. I always tell people, you're only as good as your equipment. Once you start exceeding your equipment's capabilities, you stop learning. Nice. So everything has got to be better than you. Because then when, then when Frank Galley goes out to the range and he's shooting at 1,200 yards and you put the dope on your gun for your first round and it goes right where it's supposed to be, your confidence just went up drastically. Right. Even for a, a mediocre shooter, when you can do stuff like that and your calls are on, your confidence is, is 
night and day different, and it just overall helps your shooting ability and stuff. It's mindset, mental, that mental side of it. And, and let's yep. to kind of go the mental part of it to go with the same bullet part. I want to just really quick uh, go on to because this goes to twist rate and bullet the Valkyrie. Because everybody knows I'm a huge proponent of the Valkyrie. I love the Valkyrie. I like shooting it for me. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's good for, you know, women and kids and coming up. And it's economical. But, you know, the hiccup when it started with the 90-grain bullet. And then you get people second-guessing the twist rate of the Valkyrie. And just kind of because you, you, you've you seen it and, and you've worked, you know, through it a little bit. How that Sierra did change that 90 grain and it was the bullet, not the twist. Not There was a little chamber with a bad reamer for a while. Um, that, yeah, there was that stuff going on. There was some, you know, problems with the, year with the ammunition or something like that. I don't know. There was a kind of like a little conglomerate of problems that were going on. But uh, yeah, Sierra made a change to their bullets and their, their failures basically stopped. So yeah, they might have coughed up a few BC points on the on the bullet, but you, would you rather have the bullets work and make it to the target, or you have the you got the few extra BC points, but you run into failures once in a while, right? You know, but, so yeah, no, I was just gonna but, say that this. Hang on, we got some weird little hiccup was coming in, but no. So uh, what I was gonna say is that you know we've kind of gotten past this, but it, it threw a stigma onto the Valkyrie that something was wrong. Well, yeah, there was there was a list of things that were wrong. Maybe it came out too soon, whatever the case may be. But, uh, you know, just to let people know, it's sort of, it's been solved. I mean, guys are having good luck with the Valkyries. People are, are happy shooting them now. And, and, but, oh, yeah, yeah. I, get, I, get stuff, I get stuff all the time from Paul Craddock at Craddock Precision. And he sends me targets and stuff all the time. So how happy the guys are with, you know, the guns that he the uppers that he built them for them with in two two four Valkyrie with our barrels and stuff. Yeah, cool. and I don't think I don't think there's a might have been a teething problem. It was new. There were maybe there were some bugs in it. You got the other problem with more of the factory type guns too, and what they were running for twist rates or or chambers or bore size and barrels and stuff. But I, I don't think it's anything. I don't think it's as bad as what people think it is. Yes, and Craddock's been doing such great stuff. I mean, everybody raves about the Craddock um, uppers and barrels and everything that's going on in the Valkyrie side of things. Everything uh, that Craddock does, it, it, it's, it's just top-notch. And mm-hmm. they're using your product in, in, in your barrels and things like that. So on the semi-platform, you know, the Craddocks are working well for people. Um, like my my bolt action on a bighorn is a left hand gain twist as well. My Valkyrie is that, and and it's been working out. I I actually had a case of the um the federal ninety grain that was supposed to be the bad stuff, and mm-hmm. I shot it out of my gain twist Valkyrie, and it works. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- there you go. That how how I still again going back to this gain twist think that you can um. That, you know, it solves problems that people complain about when it comes to this twist rate equation. You know, why are, why are we arguing twist rate equations when we can say, well, okay, if it's supposed to be, if, if you can go from eight and a half to something, well, like I've been doing on the six five is I've been going that eight and a quarter down to like seven five. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit over eight, so no big deal. I'm not quite eight and a half, so I could do lighter bullets. 
Then I'm going down to that 7.5 so I can go to the heavier bullets, but it's happy in between. You know what I mean? Right. And, and it's it's taking the guesswork out of it is how I look at it. Where it's like, okay, sure. you know, eight and a half to seven or eight and a quarter, seven to uh, five. And that three quarter gain, I know you guys have been, been bouncing between three quarter gain and one inch gain, you know, one gain. One inch gain, yeah. yeah. You and, know, some, and some of the short range BR guys are only doing like a quarter gain, but they're still doing something. Right. That's, that's, that's the interesting part. The other thing that a lot of people don't think of or understand is they say, oh, yeah, but I, I had a seven twist. And I'm not picking on a manufacturer per se. I have a, I have a factory, uh, uh, let's just say a Ruger RPR um, Valkyrie um, type gun. And um, what people don't understand is that it, some of the, going back to uniformity of twist and the gain twist and stuff, is like the button barrels and that, when they pull the button through or push it, depending on the manufacturer, what happens is the button can hit a hard spot or soft spot in the material and typically they'll slow the twist rate down. Some of the manufacturers are trying to help guide the rotation of the button because the twist of the barrel rifling for a button rifling, it's built into the button. But if the button does slow down, it can speed back up or it can keep getting slower. But what you end up with when that happens is a non-uniform twist. And especially if the twist goes negative, either one of those things always works against you or I tell guys it makes the gun more temperamental in terms of the type of bullet or the type of ammunition that, that gets shot through it. And, and that's huge, man, because that's those things you were talking about that we can't necessarily quantify, that we, mm-hmm. we know there's the problem there. It's like, I know it's that, but mm-hmm. where is it with that? What is it with that? How do we damage control it? You know, how do you look at it? And, and you know, kind of going back to the, this is bringing us to this internal ballistics, um, La Palma guys, how anal retentive on the internal ballistic stuff in the chambers those guys do. They don't want to chase the lands. They want the load to stay this long. They're looking at these internal dimensions to the nth degree. But then mm-hmm. if you get a factory gun and you don't know, we have no idea what's going on inside there. Well, sure. You look back. I mean, you, you talk to anybody that was shooting La Palma stuff. And again, I'm not trying to pick on the manufacturer. Uh, Ruger, I think, really stepped up and tried helping to sponsor the U.S. Palma team. So they did like a factory-type built um, Ruger Palma rifle. I forget when it was. Back in the, I think it was back in the 80s sometime, 80s or early 90s, mid-90s or something like that. And it just it turned into a disaster for the team. I, and that, I think there was more than one problem that was going on, but uh, it, just, it just didn't work. And, and I won't name the ammunition or the bullet maker, but last year we, I was talking to one of the ballistic lab guys and they found where, uh, they were working with 300 wind mag and they started with, uh, uh, ammunition test barrel and it was ours and the ammo was only coming in like minute, minute and a half. That's all it was shooting. And they thought, well, that was weird. So they grabbed a second bar line barrel. Again, it only shot minute, minute and a half. That's all, that's all it would do. They thought, well, that's really weird. One, maybe two in a row. There's got to be something else going on. So then they went and they grabbed a high-end button-made barrel, put it on, put it on another test gun. It shot two to two and a half minute groups. The group size is basically doubled. Well, they ended up going through three button barrels. That's when they actually then at that point in time they knew they had an ammo problem, 
in terms of accuracy, but it really pointed out to him how much a good barrel can help a bad situation. So you still had an ammo problem. There's still something going on, and some people think when it happens, they'll say, oh, it's the gun's fault, it's the, it's the barrel's fault, or the ammunition's fault, or in your case, you're at the range, and you get that flyer at 8 o'clock that you can't, you don't know why, where it came from. You're, you're guessing as to what's going on. But that's where the, I think the uniformity of twist, and in some cases, maybe the game twist can help that. But it, the twist and what goes on inside the barrel is, is very critical to everything as well. It's, it's, it's all in the quality of everything. Yeah, and that's, and that's I, I mean, I say it all the time, like especially on the semi-auto side, it's barrel, barrel, barrel. I mean, you know, we, we tend to get away with so much because our equipment is so good today. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it to me, you know, it's that 80% barrel and then the rest. It, you know, like I, I kind of, I get it because it's so, but like right now, look at the custom action makers, how many there are. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like, to me, it's like, it's a delivery device, man. It's really, it, it, yeah, the threading, the lockup and all that. I get that. Sure. I get the front the end of it. part of it. Yeah, I get the front end of it. But it's kind of like, do we really need this many actions because the action's not the decider to me. Yes, the feeding right. and stuff does matter. Don't get me wrong there because we're magazine-fed. We're running bolts fast. You know, and, right. and for speed and competition, your bolt throw, 60 versus 90, this versus that. You know, three lug. It's minor. Right, right. That, that's that's sort of a— That's minor, and that, that, that's minor, and that's more cosmetic and personal preference than anything else. Yes, it's and, not— and it, that's, Right, and that's <laughs> yeah. why I tell guys— you know, I, I, I taught a class just this past October again down at Quantico at the Scout Sniper School. And, and I tell guys, you know what? I go, you can take a mediocre action, do good gunsmithing work, you put a good barrel on the gun, you bed the stock good or it's, or it's put into a good chassis, you got good ammo and good optics. I go, more often than not, you end up with a very good rifle. But you can put the best, quote-unquote, action, the best stock, um, you put a mediocre barrel on it, you take that shortcut, and you usually end up with a mediocre rifle. And they all got that. They all understood that. Yeah. And, and that, it goes back to what I said. Your, 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 your equipment's got to be better than you, and it's got to be all of your equipment. Nice. No, that's great. And it's, it's cool because we're kind of coming on to the hour, and I don't want to get into a, a, a new topic. Um, yeah, we'll, no we'll, problem. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go long. But, no, this was – Honestly, I, we need to do this again because I want to get into sort of the cleaning things because we we both sort of agree on the cleaning side of stuff where we tend to clean a little less than most people. We're not chasing break-in as much. So, uh, you know, I want to explore that but, but deep. To, but you still have to do it at times, though. Yes, you do. <laughs> you, uh, and, 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 and I've done it at times, but, it, you know, it, it's something. But where some of the is there any kind of trends any kind of future looking you know i don't want to go into what you guys are doing um behind the scenes but just for the the people out there are there any trends that you see that maybe somebody who's gonna chase accuracy is should be looking at is there anything you think is on the horizon that people would be interested in um, boy, I didn't, I didn't think of you asking a question like that Me at neither. all. I'd, have, I'd actually have to give that some kind of thought. Um, yeah, there's some stuff in the works. You know, there's some stuff that we're working on and stuff that I ain't going to get into right now. But, you know, I, I think there's probably the biggest thing I see going on, one of the biggest things I see is, is the, uh, the amount of effort 
bullet makers are putting into trying to make good bullets. Um, not just always chase the BC, but make a very good and a very forgiving bullet. I think that's a big thing going on. And um, I, I just and, had that uh, conversation. I don't know if you, you probably didn't hear it, but with uh, Josh from Patriot Valley in terms of solids that you were talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Just to kind of, because we got like a few minutes to the, you know, three minutes or so. Um, what I was saying to him with these solids is that most people who make the solids are trying to squeeze a lot because they can out of a solid. And I had right. presented to Josh, why don't you make a solid that's more forgiving, that's a little closer to a jacketed bullet in terms of design. And this goes to what you were saying to kind of wrap it all up. Maybe not as long, maybe not as pointy, maybe not as this, where it's not a 50% improvement over the jacket. It's only a 25%. And, and I'm using big numbers, I get. Right, but it, right. It's, but, it's, but it makes it more consistent. It makes it more forgiving. Yes, and, and then that helped to kind of ease people in to see the benefit of a solid better. Because right now, the majority of people's solids are either out of their price range and have to reload it because there is no real good factory options for a solid. And mm-hmm. because they always push that envelope with them. But, I, you right. know, and, and like talking to Josh now and what they're kind of looking at is backing the solid off and making it a little easier, a little more forgiving, a little less money. And yet we're still getting, you know, like I said, maybe it's a 10% benefit, but a 10% right. benefit on a bullet is huge. Right. And and we've gotten into that with some of the guys building guns or, or a bullet maker per se. And, you know, they, they ask us for a twist rate recommendation. And then we look and we see the bullet. And it's like, well, A, why aren't you asking the bullet maker? B, we start looking at them and we're going, wow, this is going to be problems. And then they often they'll come back and they go, oh, well, we're going to spin it even faster. Can you make us a six twist barrel? And I go, yeah, we can. But if there's a problem design in the bullet, you're just kind of masking the problem, but the problem's not going away. So the book to me, it's, it becomes more temperamental. And, and as I said, you know, I think that's one of the things that um, some of the bullet makers are realizing or seeing um, to make the, not so much go for the ultimate BC number, but make it a good design and make it a, a more forgiving bullet. Nice. No, that's a great way to end it off. And, 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 and I, I appreciate you coming on and taking your time. We definitely have to do this again because there's a lot more of this yeah, opened whenever, up. Whenever you want, man, just just let me know when you want to, you know, you want to do the cleaning thing next or something like that. Just, just let me know when you want to do it. Great, great. No, I, I really appreciate it. I'm going to do the sign out, Frank. Um, Just stay on the line and then when we get the music and then I'll I'll, I'll, I'll cut the recording off and I'll just give you a, a, a thanks a lot off offline. But I want to thank okay, you. Thank you for coming on and doing the Everyday Sniper podcast. Um, tell everybody in the shop to stay safe. Tell thanks to Tracy and everything. Um, you know for for opening this door up for us, and we will talk to you soon, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, sharing. Thanks for being part of the Everyday Sniper podcast. We're gonna sign you out. Have a good one, guys. Yep.